Hi everyone, welcome back to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. I'm Ren Levy. Yossi, where could I find your face now? Other oh, than in front of me here. Well, that's a good question. Probably everywhere. Yossi Nal is a security engineer of two decades and one of the founders of Cyberism. Definitely you can find it on, uh, on Facebook. You can find it on uh, LinkedIn, um, on several newspapers, um, online publications, uh, physical publications probably too. Yossi isn't a public figure, but he's been around the block enough that if you manage to spell his name right on Google, you'll find plenty of pictures of his face. Some of you out there are in the same predicament. Some of you, due to your career or because you're proficient with social media, will have many more pictures online than Yossi does. But even for a cybersecurity audience, I can't imagine many of you out there having no pictures out on the web. These days, it requires diligence and effort to be that private. Is it possible that I might find your image in places where you don't yet realize it is? I, I wouldn't be surprised. Is it possible that you, listener, have images on the internet you're not aware of? You might not realize what's out there, in the database of the gym you used to go to, or the office building you used to work at, or on your old MySpace account. The other day, Nate Nelson, our senior producer, ran his and my face through a face search engine to test it out. I found you at around 20-something with this kind of Backstreet Boys haircut and an earring, and then there was one headshot which was labeled adult content, which I can only assume was because your old sideburns were so dang sexy. Uh, yeah, that was my <coughs> Asimov period. But hey, it's nice to know that I have an alternative career in the adult industry in case this podcast thing never gets off the ground. I don't know, Ron. There's a reason they put you on radio instead of TV. Hmm. Note for later. Fire Nate. The fact that there are pictures of me I don't remember in places I didn't expect doesn't surprise me much. And that's important for our story today. This episode is about a problem that arises when we have too many faces in too many places. Because... Like any data, your face isn't something to be carelessly tossed around. There's a value to it, a market for it. When I tell people about Family Sounds, the audio documentaries we create for families who wish to preserve an important piece of family history, a lot of them ask me if those family histories are really interesting to listen to. After all, we're talking about our parents and grandparents, not some famous movie stars or scientists. And my answer is always the same. You'd be amazed at the stories we get from these people. War stories, business stories, love stories. 
almost everyone, especially if they had long and fruitful lives, have wonderful stories to tell. We want to be the ones to take your family's personal stories and turn them into wonderful documentaries. Trust me, your family's future generations will thank you for that. Visit familysounds.co and learn more about what we do and how we do it. Family Sounds, a gift from our time to our future. familysounds.co Come one ton toot understood that before the rest of us. You probably wouldn't have pegged this guy to start a revolution in facial recognition technology. But then again, it's impossible to tell what the heck this guy's deal is. When you watch him on TV, he seems utterly ordinary and harmless. When you look closer, things get a lot, lot weirder. One, an Australian of Vietnamese descent, is a young guy, born in 1988. In 2007, he dropped out of college and moved to San Francisco to become an app developer. He set up shop in a hip, up-and-coming part of town where startups tended to congregate, and did his coding at a stylish, high-end coffee shop in the neighborhood. So far, so good. Here's how one describes his first two years in the industry. Quote, From July 2007 to July 2008, I built 16 Facebook apps with different code bases with a combined unique install base of 6 million. In March 2008, the applications had over 150 million page views. In August 2008, I sold the top apps. Have you ever, would you rather, friend quiz and romantic gifts? I've also built eight iPhone apps, notably Expando being the number two app in September 2008, receiving four stars and over 400 reviews. End quote. It sounds pretty impressive, but we can't say to what extent this information is actually true. What little reporting there is suggests that his early apps largely failed, and when you think about it, that makes sense. Why would anybody build 16 apps in two years if they were doing so well? Mark Zuckerberg didn't invent Facebook and go, hmm, now I have to build a dozen more apps to go with it. In 2009, years before one was truly worth writing about, a Gawker writer summarized his place in the San Francisco startup scene. Quote, Everything about Tan Tut's life and work is a screaming stereotype of San Francisco's web crowd. A bunch of supposed individualists would be paralyzed with fear by the idea that they're not living in the right neighborhood working in the right office and chasing the right technological trend. End quote. If one really were successful, and not just faking it, he probably wouldn't have made the career choice he did a few months later. In 2009, he created the website video.com, which asked users to log in with their Google accounts in order to watch a particular video. When the user did so, 
the website hijacked their account and sent malicious phishing links to all their contacts. Police became interested in Video and the website was shut down. One then revived his computer worm via a new domain name, fastforwarded.com, and included the following disclaimer, quote, We had a bug in our code that would send everyone a video when they logged in, end quote. One soon gave up on hacking and got a job at AngelList. In 2016, he tried out modeling. And it kind of makes sense. He's an interesting-looking guy with soft facial features and dark brown eyes. He's thin and has long, flowing black hair that reaches below his shoulders. You wouldn't think twice seeing him on a poster for H&M or J. Crew which, let's face it, isn't something you can say about most programmers. But even more than that, one has that kind of vibe to him. He plays the guitar and mixes androgynous high fashion with clean, tight suits. His personality somehow blends Silicon Valley with futuristic alien hipster. In his Twitter bio, he described himself as, quote, anarcho-transsexual Afro-Chicano-American feminist studies major. <laughs> if you're confused, that's probably by design. With one, it's always hard to tell where reality ends and trolling begins. I mean, even if we leave everything else aside, he is a Vietnamese-Australian, describing himself as an African-Mexican-American. We weren't sure which pronouns to use to refer to one in this story, because a narco-transsexual may be just as much as a ruse as Afro-Chicano-American. We chose he or him, as that is how he is referred to in the news, and that's as close to reality as you can get with this person. So the question now is... How does an anarcho-transsexual Afro-Chicano-American feminist studies major slash developer hacker slash model end up sparking a revolution in facial recognition technology? Well, the answer is obvious, by becoming a political extremist. According to testimony and leaked documents obtained by the Huffington Post, it was around 2015 when Wan Tan Tat became involved in the highest rungs of the far right, brushing shoulders with the likes of white nationalist Richard Spencer and Pax Dickinson, the disgraced former CEO of Business Insider. He had connections with financiers of the far right, and was a member of the Slack channel for WeSearcher, a short-lived crowdfunding site for conservative political causes. The channel included such esteemed individuals as the men's rights activist and conspiracy theorist Mike Cernovich and the famous hacker Andrew Orenheimer. As he became embedded with the far right, one developed a little app that allowed users to put Donald Trump hair on their selfies. It was a modest contribution to the pro-Trump movement and not very popular. But his luck was about to turn. 
At a Manhattan event hosted by a conservative think tank, one met Richard Schwartz, a longtime aide for Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. One and Schwartz took to one another and decided to partner up on a facial recognition business. One would do the tech, Schwartz marketed to his political connections. Possibly even more crucial, though, was a man who joined up soon after. Charles Johnson is a former writer for the alt-right website Breitbart, with notable connections to their billionaire Peter Thiel. Sources claim that Charles and one began working together in 2016, and at least two of Johnson's colleagues joined in as well. By 2017, they'd hone in on a direction for the company, a facial recognition app for law enforcement. Why law enforcement? For one, maybe it was just another exciting new project in his illustrious career as a developer. Or maybe it was more than that. Johnson, his partner, had a very clear motive. In a Facebook post, he reported, quote, building algorithms to ID all the illegal immigrants for the deportation squads, end quote. In 2017, Peter Thiel became one of one's earliest investors, buying equity in the company at a price of $200,000. According to Huffington Post, quote, Thiel himself has an obvious interest in mass surveillance. Palantir, his data mining behemoth, aggregates enormous amounts of personal information about immigrants and undocumented workers, and it provides the analytical tools for ICE raids." End quote. With backing from mainstream investors like Thiel and the co-founder of AngelList, one distanced himself from his alt-right beginnings. As part of their rebrand, he would give his company a suitably vague Silicon Valley-sounding name, Clearview AI. But even as he repositioned himself as a proper startup founder with a legitimate politically neutral business, the DNA of Clearview, the underlying reason it was created in the first place, would never entirely go away. Clearview um, is a company that, that gathers data from kind of open source images. Um, well, open source perhaps is not the right word because nobody gave them permission. When you post a photo on social media, its visibility is dictated by whatever privacy settings you've set on your account. Like maybe your vacation photo albums aren't public, but your profile picture is. You can adjust your settings to manage all this, but frankly, not everybody goes through the trouble. And sometimes you're in someone else's photo, in which case you're not the one making these decisions. By the end of it all, you probably end up with a certain amount of photos which are out on the open internet. A lot of this data is just publicly available or rather publicly searchable. So you could run indexing against uh, Facebook, against Twitter images. They usually have a name attached to it. And with, uh, with social networks moving towards a more and more verified model, you know, Facebook wants you to use your actual name when you're, when you're on Facebook. 
So, and some people have other public uh, or personal identifying data attached to it as well, their email, their phone number, maybe their family members. Cumulatively, what we're talking about here are untold billions of photos connecting faces with names and other personally identifying information for most of the world's internet-using population. All this on the open internet. It's something we don't think about much because it's never been important. It was never important until one Ton Tat had an idea. To build a facial recognition algorithm, you need two things, code and reference data. Around 2016-2017, one realized that all our photos just waiting around on the internet completely took care of that second part. It was free real estate. All he needed was to develop the code to gather, index, and query it all. So he hired an engineer to build a program that would take all of our photos and organize them in a single database. So it's actually not that hard. Um, I mean, if you, you kind of wanted to do it, uh, it's not particularly difficult. So basically what they do is they run, they run a process called scraping, which is really looking through records in these companies. When Clearview scrapes photos from social media, it does so without the site's permission and in violation of their terms. But it's not actually illegal. It's like going to an ice cream shop and sampling every single flavor. Everybody knows you're not supposed to do it, but nobody is going to arrest you for it either. So... They do un- an unauthorized collection of, of photos, mostly from social media uh, and publicly available photos uh, of people that there are a ton of these and a ton of sources, a ton of ways to get them. Uh, they attach them to names and they allow you basically to do reverse image search. According to one, Clearview built a database of over 3 billion images from the web. The next step was to design a program which could make sense of it all. Could you talk about how this kind of algorithm, this kind of tech works? In the case of uh, facial recognition, you really just want an image of the face and at a minimum a name that you can attach to it. The difficult problem is converting that into information that you can use to kind of hash or identify, uh, kind of link up and match. So all biometric matching algorithms are done through a process called hashing. Um, which is taking aspects of, you know, of your face. Uh, and uh, we try to use things that are uh, translation-free. So, for example, the distance between your, uh, your pupils, um, the, the, the distance between your pupils and your nose, uh, the distance between your nose and your mouth, the shape of your mouth, um, the, the kind of relative length of your head. Developing a biometric matching algorithm these days isn't beyond reach for even moderately talented engineers. Clearview is perfect evidence to the point. According to the New York Times, the entire algorithm was coded by just one engineer. It was based on existing academic research, but still. The only real technical barrier was figuring out how the software would interpret data, this translation problem. 
you want features that if you turn your head a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, that they would be preserved as much as possible. Uh, no glasses, look head on. It makes it a lot simpler to identify a person when you see their face kind of head on, the head isn't tilted in any way. The more translation there is, the harder it is to kind of correct the image to its original form. However, there has been significant advances uh, in image processing over the past uh, couple of decades, and translation or retranslating the image back to kind of its original shape, identifying the specific uh, pivot and turn that the image has, and to some extent removing artifacts, like, you know, identifying how you would look like maybe without your glasses, uh, makes it a little bit easier. Machine learning has improved to where you don't need perfect training data. But if you've seen social media photos, they are quite difficult. Social media pictures exist in every conceivable form and fashion. It's not easy for a program to distinguish your facial features in your class photo, where you're just one small face among 50 others, or in those blurry photos you drunkenly took in a low-lit bar. It's not an easy thing to do. The algorithmics of it um, are, are a little bit difficult, and you need kind of high-quality photos. Unfortunately, the quality of photos... Uh, is becoming a lot Im- a lot more improved over time and of course you can there can be photos of you tagged with your identity without you even doing it right on social media your friends take a photo of you so the availability of photos where you, where you can be identified is uh, has been significantly increased Have you ever uploaded a drunken late-night photo to Facebook? But Facebook still suggested the correct people to tag even before you could tag them. The algorithms have gotten really good in recent years. In many cases, they beat humans. Two years ago, for instance, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the NIST, gave a set of 20 pairs of images designed to be very difficult to parse to two groups. The first group were leading facial recognition algorithms. The second were humans, but not just humans, experienced forensic examiners. A NIST researcher summed up their findings succinctly. Quote, Well, it turns out the best algorithm is comparable to the best humans. End quote. There are so many cases of machines now surpassing humans in facial recognition. In fact, it's not even a new phenomenon. A decade and a half ago, researchers began building algorithms that could surpass our own ability to recognize one another under specific conditions. Cold, heartless machines even beat us at recognizing emotions. In 2014, a company founded out of the University of California at San Diego developed an algorithm which could distinguish between when someone was making a genuine facial expression and when they were just acting at a rate of 85% accuracy. Humans in that same test could tell only 55% of the time. In other words, machines would hate movies. They'd see right through Meryl Streep.
This isn't to say that all facial recognition is better than humans or even good at all. It really depends on which algorithms you choose. Last year, NIST tested 189 different algorithms sold on the market, developed by 99 different companies. They conducted a variety of tests, and suffice to say, the results varied. So NIST, they did an experiment where they, they tried to match up um, well-known public figures. I think they, they specifically tested uh, congresspeople in the United States against a database of, uh, of criminals. And they got a, a surprisingly high match. So I think they, they got like 30 or 40 false positives. So these algorithms, they're, they're not super accurate. And they used a really, really good uh, data source, right? Because they, they were matching up against criminal photos. Criminal photos, they're, uh, they're, they're taken as, as, you know, as um, well-formed portrait photos of the people. And they were matching them up against really nice, well-aligned uh, photographs of the congresspeople. The extent of NIST's findings were shocking, prompting calls for investigation by Washington lawmakers. We don't have time to review the whole study, but for a sense of just how bad some of the results were, consider this. Some algorithms falsely identified certain racial groups a hundred times more often than others. A hundred times. That's an incredible and dangerous result for algorithms which are currently on the market and being used out in the world today. With Clearview specifically, we, we don't have access to, to their technology and to their specific database that they use. There's reason to be suspicious about whether something like Clearview could actually work. For one thing, it was largely built by one engineer. I still haven't gotten over that part. Furthermore, a database of 3 billion images is really difficult to wrangle. Having lots of training data is always good in AI, but having to cross-reference 3 billion data points for any given query is a different story. So let's say I look like 100 people out of the you know billions that live in the world. Probably I look like more than 100 people. So take those 100 people. If all of these 100 are in the database, then there's a good chance that if you showed even a human my picture and a picture of any of those 100 people, they would say, oh, yeah, it's this guy, and it's this guy, and it's this guy. So the larger uh, the, the database you're using, the larger the probability of mistake. There is no publicly verifiable data on the efficiency of Clearview's algorithm, so we can only infer from circumstantial evidence like from the testimony of a Florida detective named Nick Ferreira, who spoke to the New York Times. For years, Ferreira had relied on Florida's statewide facial recognition program called the Face Analysis Comparison and Examination System, or FACES for short. FACES worked because it was designed for use across law enforcement in the state, leveraging a database of 30 million Floridians' mugshots and DMV photos. You'll recall that these kinds of photos are the best kind you can give a program like this. But when Ferreira tried out Clearview, it was no contest. FACES didn't touch the web, but Clearview pulled from everywhere. 
faces required clear, straight-on pictures, but Clearview could handle angles and even hats, glasses, and partially covered faces. When Ferreira fed it photos from old dead-end cases, Clearview gave him back over 30 new suspects to look into. One Ton Tat told CBS that his program runs at an accuracy rate of 99.6%. He told the New York Times it was 75%. Whatever the exact figure is, it's definitely high, because one has a lot of customers and they pay an absolute premium for his service. Nick Ferraro's police department pays $10,000 for a year's subscription. According to CBS, one's biggest clients pay around $25,000 per year. You better bet that for $25,000 a year, this program can match faces pretty well. If you're a defender fighting to protect your organization from cyber attackers, you must be successful ending attacks every single time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. Our future-ready attack platform gives defenders the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats, and the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Cyber Reason ends cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. In a sense, Clearview was the thing that finally turned One Ton Tat into the visionary tech entrepreneur he always imagined he would be. Because whether you like his idea or not, it's built on the same kind of innovation that has defined our era of big data. Whether it's Google, Equifax, or the entire Internet of Things industry, Many of the most important developments in technology of the past 20 years have been born out of the idea that there is a wealth of data out in the world waiting to be seized. The internet had websites, then Google indexed them. We all had personal information before Equifax collected and stored it. Facebook turned us into data-generating machines. But we shouldn't give one too much credit. He wasn't the first person to leverage online photos for facial recognition. Facebook already had complex face recognition technology built into its program, and Google had considered Clearview-like algorithm back when One Ton Tat was still writing malware. Google's former chairman, Eric Schmidt, explained that his company wouldn't pursue facial recognition technology because it could be used in, quote, a very bad way. So really, one didn't come up with anything new. He merely did what others before him were not willing to do. Take everyone's photos without asking and use them in a very bad way. Clearview, which had marketed itself behind closed doors for two years, became public in 2019 in association with a case of theft in Florida. Just as quickly, Twitter, Venmo, and the other companies it scraped from sent cease and desist orders to one's company. 
Facebook sent a cease and desist, despite Peter Thiel, one of its board members, being the project's most prominent investor. It's unclear whether any of these orders had any effect, as Clearview hardly slowed down in the months that followed. Frankly, if one Tontat cared about following rules and getting permission, he wouldn't have come up with Clearview in the first place. You just don't beat a company like this by doing everything above board. You have to get down in the mud, play at their level. On February 26th of last year, Clearview AI notified its clients that it had been breached. An unknown entity had gained unauthorized access to their systems. You might say that a hacker scraped their data without permission. Now, this is the point in the story where you'd expect us to criticize Clearview's security to talk about how a company could have stolen all our pictures, then lost them to a hacker. We'd talk about how irresponsible that is and what it means for privacy in general. But that's not what happened at all. Instead, after the hacker gained access to Clearview's systems, they went straight past their image databases to their client databases. They stole a list of Clearview's customers, as well as data on how many accounts they owned and how many searches they made. In a grand stroke of luck, this hacker turned out to be on our side. Their mission was righteous. And kind of genius. Big tech couldn't stop Clearview AI. Law enforcement wouldn't. But this hacker spotted an exhaust port in the Death Star and fired two proton torpedoes straight at it. They leaked Clearview's clients to BuzzFeed, not to change anyone's mind about Clearview, but to expose all their clients who wanted to use facial recognition, but didn't want anyone to know about it. And let's just say, one Tontat has exaggerated a lot in his career, but this was not one of those cases. Clearview was more popular than he'd let on. In addition to hundreds of local police departments in the US, it had users in Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, the FBI, even Interpol. It had clients in Canada, Australia and India. On February 19th, in an interview with PBS, Juan Tontat was asked if he'd sell to countries where being gay is a crime. He didn't answer. Just one week later, when Clearview's clients were leaked, it became known that they had contracts in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And there was one more surprise in store. It turned out that Clearview AI was marketing itself not only to law enforcement, but to completely ordinary businesses too, like Macy's, Best Buy, and Walmart. AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, Columbia University, and the University of Alabama. Equinox, the Chicago Cubs, and as if having to watch the Knicks wasn't already punishment enough, Madison Square Garden. The list goes on from there. 
and as lawsuits came flooding in and PR teams scrambled to explain why they were secretly using cutting-edge facial recognition on their customers, the Clearview hacker's job was done. On May 7th, the company announced it would terminate its relationships with all private companies. You can't stop technological progress. You can't stop people from using technology or weaponizing it. You can only disincentivize its use or defeat it with something better. Clearview is unique and its founder is utterly strange, but it's a perfect case study in the future of facial recognition technology. It demonstrates how quickly this technology is improving and how useful it can be. It demonstrates how your face is one of the most exposed, misunderstood forms of personal data you have. It demonstrates just how many people want in on this racket and what it will take to stop them. Which brings us to the most important point of all. Clearview AI promised, at least outwardly, to stop taking on clients in the private sector. But by all accounts, they are still growing within law enforcement. In China, the US, and around the world, facial recognition is becoming more powerful and more integrated into policing. It's being used to catch criminals, but also to track peaceful protesters and even ordinary pedestrians. In the next episode of Malicious Life, what happens when Big Brother comes for you? That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. A few days ago, in preparation for this episode, we asked you over on Twitter the following question. Do you think law enforcement should be able to use facial recognition technology, or is it too much of a potential violation of privacy? There was also a poll attached to that tweet, but unfortunately we screwed up and the phrasing of the question was a bit ambiguous. So let's disregard the poll and go straight to your answers and comments. Tim Woodruff from Portland, Oregon writes, quote, To me, it's not a matter of privacy as long as the places in which it's used have no reasonable expectation of privacy. However, it should never be used, one, on its own to make an arrest, or two, as evidence in court. It should be used to direct eyes, not actions. End quote. So it seems Tim says that, yes, facial recognition technology should be used, but only to support the investigation and not as evidence. It's an interesting view, but frankly, I don't know how practical it is. Once the investigators use facial recognition to point the finger against some suspect, I'm afraid that it would be very easy for them to become biased against that suspect and unconsciously tilt the other evidence against them. That is, you can use facial recognition to direct the eyes, but I'm afraid that it will also direct the brain. 
Infosec Bro, who is from Dallas, Texas, writes, quote, It's 2021. If there's no government agency that doesn't have a tap on you, then you are probably living in an isolated cave. From facial recognition at airports to a company selling your Google search to advertisers, everything is a violation of privacy. Just have to live with it. End quote. In other words, Infosec Bro is saying it doesn't matter what we think about facial recognition technology. The train has already left the station. However, most of you seem to think that we still have the chance to control how facial recognition is used by law enforcement agencies. For example, Nunia Bidnis wrote, quote, Should it be running on every camera feed on every street day to day? Absolutely not. Should it be used in an established investigation or to enroll felons? Yes, and accuracy on non-white faces needs addressing, end quote. Anthony Locke from Manchester, UK writes, quote, Yes, as long as it is collected anonymously, but to actually use it and identify someone, it has to be behind a warrant. Too much power for law enforcement to have and collect a bad case on someone without additional proof, end quote. OSINT underscore SIN from Canada elaborated on this same view. Quote, I'm inclined to think that it could be a very valuable tool, but that it needs strong protections and approval processes around it. In Canada, I would see that being comparable to the process to get an intercept or wiretap. Write it out, explain why all other methods have failed, not that you just want to use this one, but that you have tried others and failed, and then tell it to a judge. I also think that it should be restricted to certain types of investigations, child abuse, CT, etc. End quote. One comment which I found to be very interesting was from Sam, who describes himself as, quote, owner of dusty and neglected mountaineering gear and unfinisher of projects. I can relate to the last bit. Sam writes, quote, I'm really not sure if the benefits outweigh the risk. No one has succinctly set it out to me yet. How does it help an investigation in a more substantial way than other evidence? How strong is it as evidence for, say, masked people? Do we need manual confirmation anyway? End quote. These are some great questions that we might explore in future episodes of Malicious Life. Indeed, how conclusive is facial identification? Can two faces be similar enough, even to a machine, as to make such kind of evidence too shaky to be useful in court? Very interesting. Thanks to all of you who took the time to answer our questions on Twitter. You can follow at Malicious Life or follow me at Ran Levy, that's R-A-N-L-E-V-I, for more interesting conversations and threads. Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our previous episodes and full transcripts. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nelson is our senior producer. Sound design by Beno Habari. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. See you again next episode. Bye-bye.